After reviewing the play, the call on the ice stands. We got to go. Okay, fellas, we are set to go. Let's go. We are kicking. Watch the blue. There we go. Yeah, baby. Number 47 for Boston. Both guys, five minutes each for fighting. Please move it. Please move it. Please move it. I got to admit this. I made a mistake. I think I'm bang on this. I'm bang on. Okay, gentlemen, play ball. Watch it here. Good checking, guys. That's good play. The Stanley Cup playoffs continue, and Josh, there is one thing that we know 100% already in this postseason. The refs suck because the fans have spoken in every building. <laughs> we have certainly heard our share of the refuse suck chant, and it, it, there's just no appeasing them. There's always going to be a bad call or a questionable call, and they're always out to get your team. So, yeah, I, I guess the fans are uh, are fired up, but you know, you're, you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt when you're when you're yelling that from the from the seats, guys. Conspiracy theories abound in all NHL buildings at this time of year. And we continue with the Scouting the Refs podcast. The hockey has been pretty exciting, though, don't you think? Oh, it's it's been amazing. I think we've had a little bit of everything. We've had goals. We've had uh, exciting plays. We've had illegal plays. We've had uh, we've had our share. Mm. They're they're really running the gamut here, Todd. Please make sure you're following us on our social channels. You get Josh at Scouting the Refs on Twitter and on Instagram. For me, it's at Todd Lewis Sports on Twitter and on Instagram. Coming up on this week's show. Fine, fine, everywhere a fine. No glove, no love. Did you get the license plate number of that truck that hit me? And once again, we've got headbutts. Headbutts. I'll give you headbutts. And I think we'll even wade into the hot topic of goalie interference. Oh, you know what? There's another thing that I know. Even though we're at the point of teams being eliminated in the postseason, all the refs are still working. They are. We've we've got everybody still going. And the more game sevens we have, the more guys continue working, squeezing in that that one other game and hopefully impressing their bosses enough to get selected to continue to move on to the next round. It's it's an honor to move on in the playoffs. And it's also a nice financial bonus because the, the officials do get an additional paycheck for every round they're going and not just their regular paycheck based on their regular salary. I believe it's, uh, I'll have to check the math, Todd, it's dollars $20,000 per round worked, so uh, no no chump change for these guys for moving on. So that's per round, it's not per game? I mean, if you were, I guess because the officials move around, if you were assigned one series and only worked four games, that's an even higher pay rate, isn't it? Yes, so great question. It is per round for the officials that are selected to work the rounds, but the guys who are on standby will get a, a per game basis for being in the building for an emergency as needed contingency basis and then if they actually have to suit up and, and go in they'll get a little bump for actually participating in the game so those guys are getting it based on the day but the the guys who are working are getting fairly compensated for each round worked while we're discussing financial details let's get to the fines over the last week we had brad marchand derek forbert of the bruins and the hurricanes respectively joining them in the dispensation of funds Jamie Benn of the Dallas Stars for high-sticking Andrew Mangiapane of the Flames. Then it was Evgeny Kuznetsov of the Capitals, who also got the maximum allowable fine under the CBA for high-sticking the Panthers' Noel Achari. Ben double-dipped this week and picked up a fine for an illegal trip. You know what I think I'm going to do here? I'm going to call them slew trips now. <laughs> 
a slew trip. It's not quite a slew foot. It's not yeah. quite a trip, but it's somewhere in between. So that was for his actions against Trevor. That was for his actions against Trevor Lewis of the Calgary Flames. And Zach Cassian of the Edmonton Oilers also got dinged five grand for cross-checking Los Angeles Kings' Sean Dursey. I, I think that all of these actions warranted the money that was paid out by the players. I think so. It's it's really hard when you're looking at postseason disciplinary action. The guys aren't getting paid, so there's there's no paycheck here. And even if you're suspending them, they're not losing money. But these didn't rise to the level to justify a suspension. I, I would even argue that in the regular season. Some of these were not suspension worthy. The most we can do is the fine. I, I wish there were something in between. I wish we had an, an option, but it's it's not enough to do one game especially in the playoffs. So all that we're left with is that $5,000 fine. You know, it puts a, a little check mark in their official record. It it underlines that this play was not legal and the league doesn't approve of it, but not a huge hit financially for most of these guys. Hopefully they get the message, but uh, financially, probably not so much. I guess we should discuss the much-discussed physical attention paid to Sidney Crosby by the New York Rangers in that series. The one that has put him out of action sort of indefinitely was from New York defenseman Jacob Truba. It sent Crosby to the ice, then to the dressing room. And because, of course, it's Sidney Crosby, he is one of the best players of all time in the National Hockey League. Everyone knows his history with head injuries and concussions. It gets a lot of attention. It gets a lot of review about the hit. Was it clean? Was it dirty? Was it suspension worthy? Was it fine worthy? I don't think it was a dirty hit by Jacob Truba. I think it was a confluence of circumstances that wound up with some head contact. And Sid, unfortunately, is paying the price for it at this time, being out of the lineup. But I, I don't think that hit in particular was a cheap shot or a dirty hit or worthy of further discipline. No, I agree with you, Todd. I think uh, Truba came out fired up. He picked up that elbowing penalty early on in the game. I think we're at the 20. 30 seconds in, and that one was a clear elbow. That one deserved a penalty. Probably not anything supplemental for that. This one, though, you mentioned it's it was a confluence of circumstances, and that's what happened. You had Truba, who wasn't necessarily headhunting Crosby. He was trying to make a play on the puck, so he stretches his left arm out, holding his stick to go for a poke check. The stick hits Crosby's skate. That causes Truba's arm to come up. That causes Crosby to go off balance and put his head in a lower position where he's more vulnerable to a hit. And then the two players collide. There was a lot of body contact. This wasn't a head-on-head -head play. This wasn't a pick where Truba took an angle purely to hit Crosby's head. It was one of those situations where Crosby's body position changed. Truba had some circumstances that affected his body position. It may have had head contact, but we have to remember not all head contact is illegal. The head wasn't necessarily the main point of contact on this play. So that's where I think player safety landed. That's why they opted not to suspend. And, and we saw the, the officials opted not to call a penalty on the play as well. I think it was unfortunate. I think we all look at the injury being the outcome. But remember, when player safety is looking at plays like this, they're not looking at the injury yet. They're not looking at what Truba did earlier in the game. They're looking at for this particular play, is this offense suspendable? If it is, then they can look at the player's history. Then they can look at what the outcome was and if there was an injury. 
I think they felt that this was not a suspendable offense. So all of that is moot. There's no suspension on the play. I think they got it right. I just think it's unfortunate. You know, the optics when you have a guy, especially somebody as talented as Sidney Crosby, lost to a head injury. You feel like there should be something for it, but it was really a, unfortunate circumstances that led to the injury and the officials and player safety felt it. It didn't deserve any punishment. I think you explained that very well. There was not even a hearing for Truba following the game after that hit, after it was looked at as anything somewhat controversial is by the Department of Player Safety. And, and I guess it does bring up the question again is, do you need to revisit this area? Is it something that we should focus on more? There will be some that say any head contact should be penalized, fined, suspended, all the rest. But careful what you wish for because you might just get it. And if that happens, that is going to create a very different confluence of circumstances with a lot more penalties and a lot more suspensions and a lot uh, different in the game. You would absolutely have some unintended consequences of that with the way hitting takes place. I know some folks want head contact out of the game, and I think we all want illegal head contact out of the game it's where's that legality should it be all head contact if it does it's going to change some things with the way players play i know people are already frustrated to have fighting down or to to be concerned that the league is trying to get hitting out of the game altogether so it, it's a tough balance there you certainly don't want injuries you don't want dangerous plays i think the league would be better served to look at some of those intent to injure plays that happen, the ones that are non-hockey plays. This was a hockey play that resulted in a head injury, but it's it's so hard to make all head contact illegal because you, you will fundamentally change a lot of things about how the game is played, and, and, and folks might not like that. That's the serious stuff. Here's one on the lighter side that you outlined nicely on the ScoutingTheRefs.com website. During a game with the Caps and Panthers, Washington forward Lars Eller lost his glove it happened sometimes during the game. Eller continued on the play without the glove and in a strange set of circumstances, Panthers Anthony Duclair, I, I, I think he was just trying to help out. He, was, <laughs> he wound up shooting the glove along the ice back toward him. However, it was Duclair that got a two-minute penalty. How can that be fair for someone who's giving and helping <laughs> that winds up in the penalty box, Josh? You know, maybe if he if he picked it up and handed it back to him. But when, when Eller's got the puck and he's trying to move it behind his own net, I'm not sure that Duclair's motives were quite as noble as you're implying here, Todd. I, okay. I, I think that return of the glove was hoping to disrupt the play a little bit. And, and that's what the problem was. It falls under interference. And if you shoot anything at the puck carrier, you're getting a minor penalty for it. Now, Duclair's lucky this happened for him in the attacking zone. So it's purely an interference penalty. If he did the same thing in his own zone and, and shoots a stick, a glove, any piece of equipment at the puck carrier, that would result in a penalty shot. So d this is very critical to know where the zone is. And, and hopefully Duclair has learned, you know, he got away with just the minor penalty here, but uh, do it again in your own end. And uh, it could be far, far worse for the Duke. All right. Well, I, I still think he was just trying to help. Uh, <laughs> here's, here's another one. That's, this one didn't even occur during game play. It was a strange incident from this past week during a television timeout. And while you and I were watching commercials at home, the ice crew is out on the ice and shoveling up the snow off the playing surface to keep it clean for the players. As they scoop it up, they load it into large garbage bins and in quick fashion... They disappear just in time for the play to resume. However, 
One of those moving the big bin got a little over-enthusiastic, and as he's shoving this giant bin full of snow up the ice, he crashed into linesman Johnny Murray. And it was a big collision, too, that they showed on replay a few times. I'm glad that Murray was able to continue. That was that was no small touch. No, it was it was scary. It was a blindside hit, I think, under the <laughs> NHL rulebook. You know, a few years back, we, we could have seen this ice crew member suspended for quite a lengthy time there. But holy cow, it, it's scary. You know, you, you really got to keep your head up at all times. And I, I know we say it with the players and we expect it from the officials, but you can't really expect to see that guy cutting across the ice like the way he did. And I'm going to say at risk of sounding like player safety, that, that yeah. the onus is purely on the ice crew to stay out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't imagine what that conversation with his supervisor was like as after he got off the ice. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's not a good one when uh, you're you're cleaning up snow and you're taking out these highly paid athletes that are out there to run the game. I mean, just just imagine if he took out a Canes player with the same kind mm -hmm. of uh, speed on the ice bucket there. So glad everyone was healthy and safe. You know, there is a standby official waiting in the wings at all playoff games. So they, they could have had somebody <laughs> ready to jump in. If Murray wasn't able to continue, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if that standby official was, was waiting for the ice crew member to leave the that, ice. <laughs> that, if, if they did have to go to a standby <laughs> official, I mean, that would have, I, that's, that's a, that's a Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan kind of situation, isn't it? It was well, like, this guy had to get into the game. I, ju I just picture Murray lurking in the <laughs> shadows with a, with a garbage can full of snow waiting for this guy. <laughs> All right, let's 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 try and bring it back to 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 game action now. In fact, there there is a collision during a game that I want to talk about. It involves the the Calgary and Dallas series. Game four, Johnny Gaudreau is hit early in the game by Dallas Stars player Vlad Nemestikov, and he is visibly shaken. In my assessment, as I'm watching, Nemestikov got a two minute minor. Gaudreau left the ice after the play. He did come out after a quick rest to play on the power play, but then left the bench for what appeared to be an assessment of his injury. I'm, I'm just curious, and if you can shed a little bit of light on what the protocol is when a player appears to be suffering from some sort of malady, head injury, or whatever. It looked like this was a high hit. He went to the ice, looked like he put his hand to his head. To me, that's a sign of we need to have this player evaluated for a head injury. And that should happen quicker than it does in some cases. And I think that's it. It's a it's a timing issue where in the past it used to be that the team doctor would evaluate. And oh God, they must have put the change in place probably 10 years ago now to yeah. have league concussion spotters that are watching. And there are spotters in the arena and there are spotters working from the NHL situation room that are watching on screens to monitor for situations where perhaps a, a player suffered a head injury. And we've heard plenty of times when they phone down and they'll request that a goalie be pulled from the game. I, I remember it happening a few times where the, the goalie seems to be playing fine, but the spotter flags that as a possible incident. They have to pull the guy from the game. Sometimes he comes back, sometimes he doesn't. There is obviously a delay in waiting for that message to come down or waiting for them to review, but you certainly don't want guys going back out there with a possible head injury or, or continuing to play. So it, it seemed like uh, maybe there's a, a speed that they could try to improve upon there so you don't risk further injury. But what they're looking for, Todd, they they want to see 
when a guy's hit with a possible head injury, you know, was he knocked unconscious? And that obviously that's a pretty big one. Is he having balance problems? Is he staring off into the distance? Is there a blank or vacant look? Is he disoriented? Is he clutching his head or is there a visible facial injury? Those are some of the criteria in their sports concussion assessment tool that they're using for that evaluation. And if one of the spotters sees this, they're they're pulling the guy from the game. But man, they've they've got to get on it quicker or you know, you don't want to risk holding a guy out until they have a chance to take a look at it. But, but man, it's scary when you have a guy who might need to go into concussion protocol that he's going to be back out there. And if he does suffer a loss of balance or he's more vulnerable to an additional hit, that just compounds the problem. Yeah, it is kind of a double-edged sword, I guess. I'll give you that, that you don't want to pull someone from a game unnecessarily. But at the same time, don't you want to err on the side of caution and the safety of the players? Yep. And that was a big part of why they moved to this approach, right? So they didn't have pressure from the teams on their team doctor to to leave a guy in the game because if he's one of your top line players, if you need him out on the ice, or, is that going to yeah. weigh in on your decision a little bit? So the league tried to take that out of their hands, but uh, you you'd certainly want to make sure you're acting quickly. How many fingers? Close enough. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. I, I remember. Yeah. Okay. Uh, perhaps Darnell Nurse of the Edmonton Oilers was A frustrated during game five versus the LA Kings, or maybe he just wanted to hear us drag out the wild Willie Barrett and John Otway 80s song headbutts one more time because he got himself in trouble with the Department of Player Safety with the lunging headbutt toward Kings forward Philip Dano. Had him for a quick hearing. They decided one game was enough. Personally, I think he got off lucky here. He could have absolutely been suspended for the rest of the series that was a vicious headbutt it, it was i think in the regular season this is easily two plus I, I also think nurse was fortunate that there wasn't an injury on the play and i think that was the only thing that kept this from being longer than it was player safety felt it was enough to suspend they then look at the injury. There wasn't one. So I, I think that is what bailed him out. I think if Dino suffers an injury, you're looking at Nurse missing at least two games. And and you touched on it, Todd. The, the playoff game multiplier is in effect. So we're looking at fewer games with a heavier weighting. It's, it's how player safety has run in the past. I, I think it's relative to the importance of a playoff game. Don't know that, that it's necessarily always... Uh, the right answer, especially mm -hmm. for something that has an intent to injure type situation. So I, I get it and I expect it, but, uh, you know, don't go easy on these guys just because it's the postseason. As you like to say, this was not a hockey play. This this was uh, was something a little bit more beyond that. And I, I, I struggle with the argument of regular season games versus playoff games. I understand that the stakes are higher and that season's can come to an end, but it just it just doesn't completely pass the the smell test for me. Player safety is always important, and you're not suspending a player unless it is a safety issue. So I don't care whether it's regular season, preseason, playoff, Stanley Cup final. If it's five games, it's five games. It's kind of where I'm starting to come down on this. I don't disagree with that approach, primarily because this is based on the player's actions. And especially when you have a situation like this, there's intent to injure. This is not making a play on the puck. This is not trying to gain possession. Why cut the guy a break? Why do that? He's he's taking this action knowing that uh, he could potentially get suspended or he should know that he could. So, you know, much like we let teams ice the puck when they're shorthanded, why do we let players get away with light punishment just because it's the playoffs? 
Fair enough. Um, a couple of goaltender interference situations I want to bring up again, mostly as a refresher and to remind people that while we joked about it, there is no conspiracy theory against your team, your favorite player, etc. So a, a couple of them occurred. Carolina, Boston, game four. Jake DeBrusque is poking at the puck. He shoves the goaltender. It is ruled a good goal. The Florida-Washington game four as well. The tie in overtime is broken by Carter Verhage with a shot that goes into the net. Simultaneously to the puck going in, Jonathan Huberdo is kind of guided into the crease by Lars Eller and sprawled upon the ice and has some contact with goaltender Ilya Samsonov. Both of these were allowed to stand, and there is a reason that both of these were allowed to stand and not ruled goaltender interference. Can you enlighten us a little bit or remind us of the ruling? Well, I think we have a couple things. That's it, It's interesting, Todd, with all the goaltender interference situations we've had in the postseason, they, they seem to be falling under some very consistent guidelines here. And the first is, where did the contact take place? Was this in the blue paint? Was it in the protected area where the goaltender is free to perform his position, to make saves, to move around? And second was if there was contact, and once we figured out where it is, how and why did it happen? Did the attacking player skate in there on his own? Was he shoved, pushed, or fouled to cause him to contact the goaltender? And we've seen all of the above. We've seen them pushed in. We've seen guys tripped to make contact with the goalie. We've also seen situations where the attacking player is moving in to make contact and will make contact with the goaltender. And there may or may not be some contact from a defending player where the league has felt that that did not influence the contact. Or if it did, there was already going to be sufficient contact even without that defender's push. I'm thinking of the the Rangers game uh, earlier, uh, game one of that series. Mm-hmm. But that's what it seems to boil down to. And I think if if folks will look and see, you know, first, where did the contact take place? Second, who initiated it? And, and how much did a defending player impact that contact? I, they've fallen pretty consistently along those lines on whether to overturn or or sustain the goals or the call on the ice. So it's not feeling as complicated or as random as some people would have you believe this postseason. So it's really the basic questions of who, what, when, where, why, and how applied to each circumstances. It is, and they're all different, and that's often what makes it hard. I I think Mm -hmm. uh, fans of Sean McIndoe, there's a great Down Goes Brown post from a while back over on The Athletic that broke down goaltender interference and kind of said, here's why it makes sense, and and he's spot on. And, And those two things are primarily what it boils down to. Now, where we have... Probably some more controversy are we've seen a couple sticks get into the goalies and the rule allows for the goaltender and an attacking player to make a play on a rebound or a loose puck in the crease. So some of the judgment has come around whether the attacking player is making a play on the puck and contacts the goalie or whether he's making a play and contacting the goalie instead of the puck. And I think those have been a, a, a bit more controversial or a bit more of a judgment call. But you know, by and large, I, I think the, the league has been pretty consistent with the rulings coming down from the situation room. If Sean McIndoe says it makes sense, then you got to believe it makes <laughs> yes. sense because he can twist anything. <laughs> OK, one other one other uh, again, a bit of a reminder or a question that we always seem to dredge up every month or so, or at least I do. There was a video review that seemed to take a significant length of time in game four with the Pens and Rangers. Crosby's at the side of the net trying to pop the puck over the line and we have to wait to find the right camera angle somewhere that clearly shows that the puck is is over the goal line and there is a white space to differentiate between on the line and in the net 
If only we had technology to help us. I know. it's It would make things so much simpler. And we've certainly extolled the virtues of puck tracking. And the league ne- need the league needs to get that fine level of detail so that we can know without a doubt, was the puck over the line? Was it deflected above the crossbar? When did it cross the blue line for an offside call? But all of those things would help improve the game. Forget knowing the speed that a player is skating or all those other fun little data points out there. Puck over the line. And, and you mentioned the length of that review. And it was a long one because the overhead camera blocked by the pad. The cameras in the crossbar blocked. The camera in the back of the net blocked by the goaltender's body. They they finally were able to zero in on, on a camera that I believe was located above and between the benches, zoomed in to see where the line was. And again, then you're starting to deal with the geometry of angles. And if the puck is elevated, how can you tell when it's over the line? This one was pretty clear. I know Calgary fans love that that parallax angle viewpoint concern on trying to figure out if a puck was over the line, sorry, on that Stanley Cup uh, <laughs> possible winning goal from some years back. But it does become a tricky science of figuring it out, one that we already have the answer for by that little chip that is already in the puck. I understand the league was asked about this and the response was recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. Thanks for listening to the Scouting the Refs podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at Scouting the Refs on Twitter and Instagram and follow Todd at Todd Lewis Sports on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe out there. Keep it clean. Watch the elbows. We'll see you back out there on the ice.